All right, flip to Colossians chapter 1. Tonight, we will begin our series in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, the word of truth. We're going to look at the first uh, eight verses. We're going to kind of just go through the book bit by bit. Sometimes I have in Colossians and Romans especially, uh, you can take larger chunks, but I want to make sure that we take our time with it. So we're going to take it bit by bit. But Colossians chapter 1, 1 through 8 is what we'll look at tonight. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 1. Verses 1 through 8. These are the words of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, guide us, we ask, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. And amen. You can be seated. So as I mentioned, we're starting our series on Paul's letter to the Colossians, and this particular letter itself belongs in a collection of what is commonly, traditionally called the prison letters. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are all considered to be letters written by Paul while he was on house arrest in Rome in the first century in the early 60s AD. Some argue that uh, Paul was imprisoned in Ephesus around the mid-50s, and that quite possibly Colossians and Philemon were both written from there. But either way, Colossians was most likely dictated by Paul to Timothy, and thus Timothy wrote the bulk of what Paul was saying. And the letter would have been delivered to the church in the city of Colossae by the hand of Tychicus. So based on chapter 2, verse 1, we it seems as though Paul did not know. He wasn't, he wasn't really familiar with the Christians in, in this city. Epaphras may have planted a house church there at one point, doing much of the work, which is why Paul sent Epaphras to them, back to them. So presumably that was the historical situation. Now geographically, if you look on the back of the song sheet there, there's a map and you can see this. Geographically, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis were cities located close together on the Lycus River, and that was about 100 miles upstream from the great city of Ephesus, Ephesus being one of the more prominent cities there uh, in this particular region of Asia. They, these cities, all of these cities, were trade routes, important trade routes in Asia Minor, and th- that, what you're looking at, is modern-day Turkey, by the way. But to this day, Colossae, interestingly enough, Colossae has yet to be excavated. But there are plans to do so, which is interesting, in the next 
few years, their plans to excavate this small city of Colossae. And you should know historically, Colossae suffered an earthquake sometime in the early 60s AD, and probably shortly after Paul's letter arrived to their doorstep. So that's an interesting predicament (laughs) for the church there who suffered uh, quite a bit under this disaster of an earthquake. Now, religiously speaking, Colossae was similar to Ephesus and similar to the whole region of, of that area. Of course, you can see on the map there, Galatia's there. When Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, it was to that region. There were several churches and networks in that area. But that whole region, religiously, was, was similar to everything. You know, Colossae was m- much like Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Ephesus. But the cults of Zeus and Apollo, many of the Greek gods were present, temples worshiping these false gods, even the worship of Artemis, uh, that's the Roman Diana in the Roman God lineup. That was prevalent there as well. Furthermore, there was this mixture of Roman and Hellenistic. Hellenistic is, is Greek, by the way, Greek culture. Roman and Hellenistic culture had saturated the region and also kind of had this mix-up where you had Jewish culture kind of thrown in there as well with synagogues and different types of, of Jewish, even aberrant Jewish mystic cults and that sort of thing, those were there as well. But Colossae was actually, it was a very prominent city, but by the time of Paul, it had lost its prominence. Sort of a forgotten city of the past at this point in, during Paul's uh, writing to them. But yet, of course, there are people there, people who need King Jesus, and so the gospel must advance in Paul's mind. Now, Stepping back for a minute, that's just a little historical survey, but when approaching the Bible, we need to have a couple of things in mind. First, we're reading someone else's mail. So oftentimes reading the Bible is akin to hearing only one side of a phone conversation, which means we have to be careful in figuring out what it is that may have been going on or not. So if you only hear one side of the phone conversation, boy, speculation can arise. Same thing with reading a letter like this. Second, when we piece this together, we can usually determine the occasion for the letter. Why was this even written? What was the importance? Uh, What is it that prompted the writer to want to put a letter together in this fashion? Especially Paul. You think about Paul didn't really know them as well as he knew other churches. So what is it that prompted the letter? Now, in the case of the Colossians, there were a few different struggles that were happening early on. Uh, There were early seeds of Gnosticism. Full-blown Gnostic heresies were developed by late, you know, first century into the second century, but there were early seeds of it that happened fairly early on. And Gnosticism, of course, believed, this is very simplified version and definition, but inward enlightenment leads to the salvation of the soul, that sort of thing. But there were early seeds of Gnosticism, of course, Jewish legalism. Paul, you can't read Galatians without knowing that Paul is trying to lay the smack down in this false gospel. But that was not just something that was in Galatia. It was in many different places as well, but it was pretty bad there. But there was also generally a cultural compromise, a temptation for Christians to want to compromise with the whole meat sacrifice to idols thing or when you're dealing with... um, (laughs) The same thing could be said today. Being a Christian is tough. It's even tougher when the culture around you is given over to pagan um, ideas. But it was tough for them. There was a lot of pressure because Jesus was just one added God on the shelf of all these other gods of Roman and Greek pagan thought. 
So it was very difficult because the Christian God required uh, exclusive obedience. And that was part of the reason the apostles got in trouble in the book of Acts for walking around telling people, yeah, Jesus is raised. He demands your exclusive allegiance. You have to put away the idols, repent, and turn to him. (laughs) And as you can tell, that caused major problems for Paul in Ephesus, especially when he put all the idol makers out of business. Hence the connection between the preaching of the gospel and culture. Now, there's a lot of talk in this letter about cosmic categories. You have thrones and dominions and rulers and powers and elementary principles of the world and angels, and you have a lot of cosmic concepts. And, And especially in the Greek world, you also have this profusion of chatter of the relationship between the body and the soul. And usually in Greek thought, thanks to Plato and even influenced later with Aristotle, you have this dualistic worldview where man is basically, you're in this caged body and you're just a soul trying to get out. And those early Neoplatonic thoughts really captured many people, and that was prevalent. It was everywhere in this culture, and so, you know, biblically there's a way to handle that, but as you know, errors can abound when you get this part of anthropology wrong. When you, what is man? Who is man? It's a central question today, and, and today, of course, it's no different when you have uh, the question, what is a woman being posed, and no one can give you an answer. Now, what Paul did was compliment the church in Colossae. He complimented their devotion to Christ, grateful to God for their devotion to Christ, while simultaneously steering them away from questionable and obscene practices. He wanted them to have a truly, a true vision of the cosmic Christ. He wanted them to know just how big and how important Jesus is and his kingdom, of the reality of his death and resurrection, Uh, He wanted them to understand the lordship of Christ as he subdues his enemies in history. He wanted them to get a bigger picture. Jesus is not just another God on the shelf. He is far more important. In fact, all those other gods, you put Jesus on the shelf, he's knocking them off the shelf. The shelf is his. So he wanted them to understand all of this. And there is, (laughs) I guess you could simply put it this way, Paul wants to display the preeminence of Christ in and above all things. And that's the heart of the Christian mission, is to display the preeminence of Christ in all things. We say here, all of Christ for all of life. And when we say all of Christ, we mean all of Christ. And we especially mean his kingdom and his lordship now, as he subdues the nations. So, simply put, that's the preeminence angle that we're going to take with Colossians. Now, there is a great danger. There's a great danger in taking what we receive in the gospel, the word of truth, and unconsciously merging it, merging it with non-Christian concepts. Okay? This is something that happens today. It wasn't just a problem in the first century. It happens all the time. There's a great danger of taking what we, what we receive in the gospel, the word of truth, as he calls it, and unconsciously merging it with non-Christian concepts. And as a result, concluding something else about Christianity that is actually quite terribly not Christian at all. And so think of it like your Christian worldview is your car and you slap a Jesus bumper sticker on it and and you just think, ah, I'll just have the Jesus part of that. I should be squared away. Not realizing that he doesn't just own the bumper, he owns the whole thing. And he owns the location you're driving to. And he, so you, you can't just 
have part of Jesus. You have to have all of, all of him. He is preeminent in everything. So don't merge it with bad theology. Don't merge it with pagan philosophies. He's going to warn of that, about that in the, in, later in Colossians. So Colossians, as we see, guards against that, against that temptation to want to say, ah, yes, I have Jesus, and then I can mix other things into that, and I'm good. That's a great recipe in my view, right? Paul says, no, that's not how this works at all. So let's look at the passage. We're just going to walk through it. <clears throat> Verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is Paul's standard epistolary greeting. An epistle is simply a letter. That's a standard greeting for him. Um, he is an apostle. He calls himself an apostle. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. The book of Acts starts centered on Peter, and then Peter kind of moves to the back, and then Paul is the one who's been called to take the gospel into the nations. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. Saul, you remember, is his Hebrew name, and that speaks of his past life when he persecuted Christians before Christ uh, made him a new creation. So here he mentions his name in, in Greek, Paulos, Paul, having been called by the will of God, by the way, he was not called on his own volition. He didn't just give himself a title and so on. You can read the uh, book of Acts to see that and when that happened. But he was called by the will of God, not on his own volition. He is a renewed slave of Christ Jesus, the resurrected King. Being an apostle signifies a legally authorized representation to speak on behalf of the King. Now, the apostles uh, were those who saw the risen Christ early on. They were the ones who saw the risen Christ. And Paul, of course, had a, an experience unlike the others. But he was an apostle. He was a sent one. Apostello is the word. It simply means he's a sent one. He was sent by the Messiah, Jesus. And he is the one whose new creation order, he's, he, Paul is sent out to announce the new creation order. It's infiltrated the ranks of the old creation world. So Paul is a man on a mission. He's determined. He's a man on a mission. He takes great responsibility in seeing to it that the gospel bears fruit in the world. He wants to see the gospel advance. Boy, if we could have half of the energy Paul had. Everything from the old world, which was marked by Adam, marked by sin, marked by rebellion, all of it has been torn asunder so that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the climax of God's redemptive plan in history, so that that can be established. The gospel changes the paradigm. It is, it's established in the old, it's a flag planted and a civilization built to expand into the entire world. That is his view of redemption. That is Paul's MO. And with Paul, of course, we have Timothy. Young Timothy, he says, our brother. So together, these two write to the saints, the holy ones. They're the faithful brothers established in Christ. They lived in Colossae. So already, Paul, de you know, Paul defines an, uh, their identity. Who are they? They're holy and faithful. Now that's God's perspective. They are the ones who are set apart. They are steadfast. That's God's perspective. Paul says, you are holy, you are faithful. Despite this, the imperfections, of course, this is who they really are in Christ. This is who they are in Christ. Some of us might shudder if somebody, to the church in Midland, 
Those holy and faithful, oh, come on, Paul, we're not that, we're not that great. <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're oftentimes unfaithful and sometimes, sometimes unholy. But that's God's perspective. That's who you are in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be transformed, to have the image of God restored in you. In you. Uh, this, this phrase, en Christuo, it's something Paul uses a lot. He uses it a lot in Ephesians as well. But it's his working paradigm for who Christians are. You are in Christ. You are en Christuo. You are in Him. You are transformed. The image of God that was broken because of sin has now been restored in you. You have your sins forgiven. Uh, your heart's changed. Your passions are renewed. Uh, your vision is restored. You can now see clearly. You see the world clearly because you're in Him. You're in Christ. And note here in the text, there in uh, verse 2, they are in Christ, in Colossae. They are established by God for the place they find themselves in. We are in Christ in Northern Virginia. We are established by Christ for this place. Christ wants to subdue Northern Virginia and the rest of Virginia. We'll even take everything east of here. That might be a longer-term project, but we want that too, to be subdued for the gospel. In Christ, in Colossae. And Paul says, grace and peace. Grace and peace can only come from God the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. The Trinity is ever-present yet again. And we know with grace, no one deserves it. God freely bestows it. Sinners revel in it. Grace and peace, a standard greeting. Grace and peace keeps God's saints grounded. When you're tempted to worry about how things are going out there in the world, and there's a lot we could focus on, negative Frustrating things, yes, but grace and peace. That'll keep you grounded. If you walk away from anything tonight, the word of truth gives you grace and peace. Stay in that grace and stay in that peace. Look at verse 3 and 4. He goes on, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, there's that phrase again, and the love which you have for all the saints. So thanksgiving is in order, and it comes from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where else can thanksgiving come from? We're running up on the annual holiday here in November of thanksgiving. Just know, where does thanksgiving come from? It comes from God, and you're allowed to be thankful the next day too. It's not illegal. So Paul, he links here thankfulness and, and prayerfulness together, if you'll note that. Prayer is, is like inhaling. Thanksgiving is like exhaling. When, when you're praying, it's like you're, ta you're taking in. But when you praise God and when you utter thanksgiving and gratitude and you verbalize that and, and, you, and you, you demonstrate that in your conversation and speech, that's the pattern. And that, auto, that, that attitude, by the way, of, of prayer and thanksgiving is something that should be as prevalent as our breathing. Why give thanks? Well, God is at work in Colossae. What is God doing? Growing a fresh crop. Paul has heard, note that, he has heard about the faith of these dear saints. So, an apostle they've never met, who no doubt they surely have met of the apostle Paul, they, they would have known of him. They never really met him, but they knew of, about him at least. They, uh, they've impressed him enough to where they've heard about, their, he's heard about their faith. And when you're in Christ, of course, what do you do when you're in Christ? You live for Christ. 
When you're in him, you live for him. And the faith given by the Holy Spirit is always a faithfulness expressed in Christ within the dominion of King Jesus. So faith is the air we breathe. That is the wind of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That is what, if we are a fish, that's the water you swim in. That is what encompasses you about. Faith is simply as important as breathing. And here Paul has this faith coupled with love. You'll note here in verses 3 and 4, he says faith and love. In verse 4, he uses both of them. Their faith, uh, of course, is our belief and our conviction that, that, that faith expressed in Christ. But love here, what is, what is love? Because we don't know that today very well. But love is this deep, genuine, Christ-centered affection and action for one another. That's what love really is. It's a deep, genuine by the way, genuine, <laughs> not hypocritical, but genuine, Christ-centered affection and action for one another. And I, I put those together because people today think of love like just this emotional gush that comes out of you magically somehow. But love is, love is an action. So faith here always gives rise to love. So faith and love are listed here, but so is hope in the next verse. Look at verse 5, 5 and 6. He goes on, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. He uses truth a couple of times here. So faith, love, hope, that is the triad of Christian virtue that Paul references all of the time. Faith, love, faith, hope, and love. Hope, we know, he says, is is safely stowed in heaven. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Hope stirs the heart towards faith in God while simultaneously stirring up love towards others. Many people today have have a very hopeless view of things. They're without hope. They really don't have any hope. They they certainly don't have hope that Jesus' promises are going to come true and that he is going to subdue the nations even if it takes 10,000 years, they don't have any hope for that. But hope is supposed to move you towards faith in God, and then it also is supposed to move you in love towards others. That's what hope is supposed to do. Hope is sort of the thing that, that lights a fire in your faith. So faith, hope, and love is bound up with Christ. That is the fruit of the gospel at work in the hearts of men. Do you have faith, hope, and love exhibiting in your life? Is it exhibited in your life? Or are you prone to anxiety and worry? Are you, are you prone to stress? Are you prone to disbelief and unbelief in the promises of God? Or do you sit anchored in, in Christ? Now, he mentions the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth, the gospel, is a force to be reckoned with. When it comes to the hearts of men, the effectual, it, it, is, it is effectual, it is altogether advantageous. That is what the word of truth is. That is what the gospel is. If you think the gospel is just this, this thing that we talk about from time to time, and you don't understand that it is the power of God unto salvation, he, Paul says in Romans 1, if you don't understand that the proclamation of the word is effectual, it is advantageous, if you don't know what that is, then you're missing the thrust of what it is, the gospel itself, and how powerful it really is. 
So when proclaimed, it is recognized. When it's recognized, the subject sees the command to repent and believe, and when believed, fruit invariably grows. So how, how can they hear unless you know, someone preaches, and how can they preach unless someone is, is sent? You know, that's the, the logic of Romans 10. So the gospel is to be proclaimed, it's to be recognized. When you recognize it, it's, it's repentance, it's belief by the Holy Spirit, of course. And then when that happens, fruit invariably grows. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 6, many English translations choose to say increasing rather than multiplying. And the LSB chooses multiplying, and this is one of the many reasons I appreciate the translation. It is the bearing fruit and multiplying. That should immediately remind you of Genesis 1 and 2. So if you have an ESV and other, other translations, it says increasing. Uh, it means increasing, but it means multiplying. No doubt Paul is thinking of, of Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to come back to that, by the way, in a little bit. So for, for the Colossians, the fruit of the gospel has been active in them. Paul praises it. Praise God the, act, the, the gospel has been active in, in this church we're grateful for that. From the moment they first believed and understood the grace of God in truth, it's been bearing fruit and it's been growing. And it's growing in the context. It's one crop growing in a huge field of the world. So cross and crown, faith should be growing in our church. And it's one crop amongst a whole other host of crops that should be growing as well. But right now, the condition of the church, there's, we don't have a whole lot of crops growing. We have apathy. We have unbelief. We have removed ourselves from culture and wondered why it's burning to the ground. The fields are on fire. But we need a fresh crop. And so Paul is grateful that in Colossae it is. And if you think about this, especially the historical context, who knows? It could have been a month after they got the letter. Colossae suffered the earthquake and it basically people had to move. It just devastated the town. We'll know more in the next few years when they excavate it. But right now you just kind of have a hill, a grassy knoll if you were to go there today. But who knew? I mean, it's amazing to think about the gospel growing and then difficulties come and how they would have had to respond. It's interesting to think about. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved, beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras, great name, you should name your kid that. Epaphras is commended for his labor in the city. He's commended. Epaphras is a godly man. He's an example of faithfulness to Christ in the mission. Um, good ministers, by the way, that word servant there is what we get deacon, the word deacon from. Same thing in Romans 13, when the civil magistrate is a minister of God. He's a servant of God, a deacon of God. So Epaphras is probably a, a deacon of sorts or some sort of evangelist, but he's an example of faithfulness and good ministers should be acknowledged. And Paul does that here. He acknowledges the work of Epaphras. So Epaphras is working and Christ is working. Epaphras is preaching. The spirit carries the word into the hearts of men. There's this work of man and this work of God that dovetails together. And uh, God uses means to achieve his ends. God uses means to achieve his ends. But the main issue here is what Epaphras told Paul. What is it that 
Paul's in prison, allegedly. If he's on house arrest in Rome, writing, Epaphras takes the letter all the way across the, the land of Greece and into Asia, and he takes this letter to Colossae, and they've never met. It's amazing. What is it that Epaphras, though, before the letter was sent, what did Epaphras tell Paul about this church? He had to have been excited about it. Hey, Paul, I planted this church in Colossae. There's Christians there. It's growing. They have a house church. They ended up having, having to, 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 to move out of their, their house, and they're, they're, they're growing, and, and all of this stuff is happening. And, and Paul is obviously loving, and he's love, loving hearing all of this. But what does Epaphras tell Paul? He says, he, essentially, he informed Paul and Timothy of their love in the Spirit. Note that. See that at the, verse of, at the end of verse 8? Verse 8. Who also, Epaphras, informed us of your love in the Spirit. Could you imagine? What would they say about crossing crown? What would Epaphras have told Paul if he never met us? What would he have said? Would he talk about their love in the Spirit? The word of truth, the gospel, produces love in the Spirit. Oh, to be marked by this great virtue. Love being the greatest of all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Oftentimes the gospel comes with fire and smoke. Sometimes it comes with whispers and tears. But either way, the sign that the gospel has taken root in your life is love in the Spirit. And love, if, if it is to be love, can only come from the Holy Spirit, quickening the hearts of men. The world does not know what love really is. They have no concept of it. They don't understand the, the sacrificial nature of love. They just think it's doing whatever your, your body thinks it should do, doing whatever lust impulse comes to you. That's love. No. Love can only come from the Holy Spirit. The world is stricken with guilt and shame and lust and anger and false witnessing and all of these things, destroying cultures, destroying peoples, ripping down nations like ours. But the kingdom, however, brings forgiveness and grace and self-control and gentleness and peace, faith, hope, love. Despite your ethnic background, despite your social status and financial portfolio, love truly conquers all. Love conquers all. True love given by the Spirit takes men alive. So from Paul's perspective, the garden city in Colossae is actively bearing fruit, which is exactly what gardens are supposed to do. Local churches are to bear fruit. And in that, Paul is obviously grateful. He's thankful. And we have here an apostle. He's bound up with a church he's never visited, proclaiming a gospel that they have heeded from Paul's friend Epaphras, and he's ministering with friends like Timothy, who Paul would die for. This is the context of ministry. And only the word of truth and the Spirit's work in someone can put this sort of thing together. Now let's consider a little bit how might we, might, how might we live in this world of ours in light of this passage. So the beginning of letters like this can be somewhat jarring and discordant. It seems like Paul is simply throwing words out, hoping something sticks. You, you read it and you think, what in the world is going on here? I'm thankful, we pray, and he keeps saying Christ Jesus repeatedly. You know, you, you try to, there's just, it's like word salad, something our vice president might say. And 
You hope something sticks, but it's not the case here. These things mean something. Epaphras planted the church in Colossae. He told Paul about the church. And ever since hearing of them, Paul has been absolutely delighted about the whole enterprise. He's excited for real Christians in a real place, in a real space and time, for their faith, their love in the Spirit. Paul is ecstatic about it. And there's real jubilation involved. I mean, real people, real faith, real jubilation. They are saints. They're faithful brothers and sisters. And later he's going to urge them to flee from all sorts of sins. But that is, Paul will tell these saints to not going on living life like a bunch of heathens. They're in Christ. We need to be reminded that we're in Christ. And sanctification, after all, is an ongoing battle. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. Act like it. That's kind of the message of First and Second Corinthians. <laughs> Here's what Jesus has done. Act like that's true, because it is true. Now, with thankfulness and prayers, Paul shows his affinity. They have demonstrated the the triad of Christian virtue. They have demonstrated faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. They have demonstrated love for the saints. And they have demonstrated hope in Christ's lordship and dominion. Faith in Christ, love for the saints, hope in Christ's lordship and dominion and kingdom. Oh, to be marked by that. Moreover, what is it that was so striking? What is it that was so striking that they needed a letter from the hand of the Apostle Paul? Well, the answer, of course, is the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth, this gospel, came to them through the, through the work of Epaphras, and as a result of that preaching, it bore fruit. And it's bearing fruit and multiplying in all the world, too. So when the word of truth is heard, the word of truth is understood, and it is grace that makes that transaction happen. So having having recently talked to a bunch of unbelievers at the college campus, and you think, man, that was both exhausting and invigorating, and you think, well, what became of it? Well, going in, in my mind, I know that the gospel, when it's proclaimed, the Holy Spirit uses that. I don't have to make someone a Christian. I don't have to force them, like, you must do this right now. All I know is the gospel is, has this built-in feature where it goes into someone, the Holy Spirit takes it through the ears to the heart, changes them, and righteousness is born. You're born again. That's the process. But we don't have to worry about the outcome, right? We just, we sow. We plant. God makes it grow. So that is the process of the word of truth. When it's heard, it's understood. And when it's understood, the Holy Spirit works in that. And and that's his business, not mine. And the church in Colossae, they were known for their love in the Spirit, which is an incredible mark of a church, something we should strive for today. Now, I want to focus in on this issue of word. There, There are, of course, we live in an age where many words are vying for attention. Many, many, many words are vying for attention. Many words claim to be truth. Think of secularism, humanism, secular humanism, smash them all together, pluralism itself, uh, pagan nationalism, fascism, communism, and so on. All of these claim to have ascertained truth, distilling it down for your palatability. Even cults and Christian heresies believe themselves to be propagators of truth. Okay, people who are out there in the world with aberrant beliefs and and false beliefs, uh, 
You name it. Any pick, any you know, throw a rock and hit somebody. They're going to have a, a some sort of some sort of belief. It's inescapable. Everybody does, but they believe that they're pursuing truth in some fashion, whatever that truth is. Even though they'll sit there and tell you, "Well, I don't believe in truth. That's your truth, not my truth." That's the language of today. But truth in the Trinitarian Orthodox Christian worldview, truth is a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Remember, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. So when we contend for the gospel, we are contending for someone. Jesus. See, this gospel, this good news, is about someone who had done something and it is Jesus who has been declared to be Savior and Lord. It is his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection that brought him to the throne of David, where he sits at the Father's right hand now as Lord and King. That is good news. That is excellent news in an age of debauchery. That is great news. And that is the gospel we proclaim. That is the gospel that bears fruit and multiplies in the world. This good news of pride and Love and all of this, it, it's shoddy, it falls apart, there's no future for it. But this is the good news because this is what bears fruit and multiplies in the world. This is God's means to achieve his ends. Additionally, Jesus also said, you might remember this in his prayer to the Father, John 17, 17, he said, your word is truth. So knowledge Knowledge, if it is to be justified true belief, must meet two criterion. This is going to seem like a rabbit trail, but it's, it's not. Think of, think of knowledge in, in our age of, of words of truth vying for attention and what, what passes at knowledge and uh, as knowledge. Knowledge, if it's to be true justified belief, that's the definition of knowledge, it has to meet two criterion. First, it must be transcendent, meaning it must come to us from the outside. Because people today want truth to be whatever proceeds from this. So if I think it, therefore it must be true. I felt it, therefore it must be true. They want the human experience, which is imminent, non-transcendent, and polluted by sin, they want that to be truth. But truth, if it's to be actual truth in our worldview, it has to be transcendent, meaning it comes from the outside. Extra nos. It comes from the outside. It's it's alien to us because of sin and unrighteousness. Our minds are polluted and debased without Christ. So how could we ever really get to truth? We can get to some truth because we're made in the image of God and we live in His creation and we can observe things and, and all of that. But true truth comes from the outside. That's the first condition. The second condition, it must be graspable. Meaning, it must come to us in a way that comports with our sensibilities. We have to be able to understand it. And that's what the Bible is. That's what the Bible is. It comes to us from God in such a way that we can understand it. I love how Calvin talks of um, baby talk. God essentially you know, was baby talk to us. The goo-goo-ga-ga stuff. Because he's so holy and transcendent and we're so sinful and imminent. In order for that chasm of truth to get to us, he has to speak clearly to us in a way that we can understand. And that's what he's done in Christ and in his word. 
So because the Bible comes from Christ, the living Word of God, it is because the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and Son, it is the inscripturated Word. So, think of it this way. This may be a little bit of, it's not really a rabbit trail, but again, it might feel like it. All non-Christian thought is inherently predisposed to what we call reductionism, meaning that knowledge becomes only what is material, what you can taste, touch, feel, that sort of thing. Knowledge is, is, is only that and only observable. Um, Eli and I have been kind of watching here and there this Ken Ham took Bill Nye, the not very good scientist guy, to the ark and gave him a tour. And they were just like arguing back and forth and it was just driving me nuts. Like I can't even watch this. Bill Nye is so pretentious. It's just, well, science. Yeah, okay. All right, big guy. In that worldview, all that you can do is observe. And they, of course, they make a lot of observations about millions of years ago because <laughs> they were there, you know. But that's what it becomes. And all non-Christian thought is based on that, which is why unbelief will always maximize some, some aspect of creation. Today, that's what we've built on in post-enlightenment thinking. We think that if we can just think it or feel it, then it has to be true. Because it's my truth. It's my experience. It's what I think is true. That's the word of truth in our day right now. That's the word of truth we're up against is this relativized reductionism. So people will literally reduce the entire world down to one particular aspect or modality of creation. Think of it like this. Karl Marx. Marx thought everything to be an economic issue. So everything, everything has to be viewed through the lens of economics. So revolution, communism, utopia. That's their idea, right? The bourgeoisie, the proletariat fighting, yada, yada, yada. Marx, that's what he believed. And many people today believe that that's the, that's the thing that's going to fix America. If we could just redistribute wealth and just keep printing money, nothing could possibly go wrong. Now... Modern pastors think everything to be a civil government issue after the past two years, so you might as well just obey whatever they say. Uh, modern scientists today think that everything is biological, so we need to lock everyone and everything down in order to contain the evolution of our species. Do you see what I'm saying? They maximize something in creation, because the creator-creation distinction they don't care about. There is no creator in their worldview. It's just us. It's just here. It's what we have. That's the word of truth. But in our view, the, to the contrary of all of that, the word of truth that guides us into the faith, love, hope, and into real truth, into the new creation, that truth is, is Scripture. It's the word of Christ, inscripturated. And it drives us back to the triune God so that we might know how to live and know with certainty. Now, I mentioned earlier the language of Paul here in verse 6. In the apostle's mind, the gospel cannot help but bear fruit and multiply. I don't think churches believe this today, by the way. It seems so incredulous. The gospel bearing fruit and multiplying in the world? I don't see that happening. I just see bad stuff going on. Well, do we either believe it or not? Do we believe, if we believe it, then proclaim it. If we proclaim it, God's going to use it. That's the point. But that's in Paul's mind. It's when the gospel is proclaimed, it bears fruit, it multiplies, in a church in the world. That's the, he cannot think of anything else. That's just what it does. That is the user manual instructions. Turn this on and watch it go. 
Now, remember in Genesis 1.28, Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. Remember that. This is in Paul's mind here when he talks about the gospel bearing fruit and multiplying. That's why I like the translation here, because it helps you think of that. The creational paradigm in Paul's outlook is here taken up in order to communicate the effectual nature of the gospel, the word of truth. So here's the thing. The normative pattern of the gospel and its work in the world is God's commitment to using the means of gospel proclamation for the implementation of Christ's kingdom rule. So that's just, that's the paradigm. Gospel proclamation is the implementation of Christ's rule. That's why we don't take swords and go, you know, make people convert. That's not, the, that's not Christianity. Christianity is gospel proclamation. God uses it to implement the rule of Christ. So when men come under divine conviction, the gospel having, having taken root in their heart, the Lord works through the preaching of that same gospel in order for seeds to be planted in the hearts of other men. And I know you know this, but you look at the world out there, the world of unbelief. Is it fair to say that that ground is very, very, very difficult to till? Is it, how do you get a seed in a heart that's made out of cement? Thankfully, it's not our job to do that. The, pro, the proclaimed gospel is a great gardening project. It tears out weeds and plants new seeds. Correspondingly, the gospel should not be reduced to mere religious fanaticism, as though it were one experience among other legitimate experiences. The gospel message announced in this disheveled, incoherent world is a new creation. It's a planting of new seeds for new crops in a world that needs better nutrition. And think about it this way. Jesus, we know, is King Adam II. He's the new Adam. He's the final Adam. He's the true second Adam. Jesus restores creation, meaning that grace restores nature. It restores the covenant, the breach of sin. As members of the new humanity established by Christ, we know that the old world is colonized through the gospel witness. We're going to get to that in verse 10, by the way, next week. But Simply put, think of it this way. Gospel people build gospel cultures through gospel preaching. That's the pattern. And the prophets had predicted a time when Israel would be replanted in the world. Jesus said as much. If you remember some of his kingdom parables, a farmer goes out to sow seeds. All of this language about replanting, that's what the Old, Old Testament prophets had predicted. Israel was going to be replanted. Did Jesus do the replanting of Israel? Absolutely. Who is the new Israel? The church. Galatians 6.16. But the replanting of Israel is Jesus sending us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Redeemed sinners become, once again, Israel for the sake of the nations. Israel was to be a light to the nations. They failed. Jesus came. Now the church is to be the light to the nations, the city on a hill. So this church, this new Israel, renewed in the new Adam for the, for the sake of the new world. That's what we live in and exist in. So faith apprehends Christ in his gospel. Hope eagerly takes hold of Christ's future promises. And love enjoins us to seek the good of our newfound family. Faith, hope, and love must mark our lives. That is the fruit that is plucked from the tree of the gospel planted in your heart. 
Faith, hope, and love. The word of truth takes us from one place, it brings us to another. That is, it takes us from the dominion of sin, covenantal death and estrangement. It takes us to the dominion of Christ, covenantal restoration, and Christian friendship. It takes you from here to there. It takes you from the old world, puts you in the new one. Next week, we'll see what he talks about. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son in verse 13. So again, faith, hope, and love must mark our lives. We'll kind of wrap it up here, though. What we must do is remember that the word of truth is what establishes men in the world for the sake of the world. Too many Christians want to retreat, walk away, leave it, watch it go. The gospel, this word of truth, establishes you. It establishes you fathers and mothers, establishes you children in the world for the sake of the world. It protects us from deception and error, heresy and false false teaching. This word of truth keeps us grounded when we feel anxious and worried. It reminds us that Christ is the only rock that can sustain the onslaught of unbelief. This word of truth, it rightly orders our lives so that we exhibit this faith, hope, and love. You, church, and I'm talking to you, cross and crown, you have been brought into into Christ, the second Adam. He has planted his truth in your hearts. He intends for it to grow. He intends for it to grow, and it must grow. Faith comes by hearing. Growth comes by weeding. How are you building your corner of the garden world? Have you tilled your hearts with the plow of the gospel? Are you weeding your life by pulling out the weeds and the roots of sin? We did like eight hours of yard work yesterday. And the property looks a lot better now, thankfully. But it was, it was a lot of work. All, all, everybody was involved. And it kind of occurred to me, yeah, this is kind of like cleaning up our hearts. It's like cleaning up our hearts. There are seasons when the leaves fall and things get messy. But we've got to clean it up. We've got to weed. Are you seeing to it that plants are growing? Are you seeing to it that seeds are planted? Wherever you find yourself, cultivation must occur before the harvest. The church today wants to see reformation and revival, but we want the harvest without planting and cultivating. And make no mistake, Christianity is a religion of worldwide conquest. It just is. Christ bought the nations. He intends to get them. It's worldwide conquest. It is the planting, the advancing, the sustaining of the word of truth in a world of lies and unbelief. But that's what we're called to. And when we cling to it, fruit is born. Love in the spirit towards one another spills out into the world and Christ is put on display. That is what the word of truth does. Let's pray. Father, you've been good and gracious to us. You have been kind, exceedingly kind to us. We thank you for the work of your Son. We thank you that you have put via your Spirit the word of truth in us. And I pray as we look through Colossians and learn from the Apostle Paul, whom you have inspired, I pray that we would learn, we would grow, we would see to it that, that we would tend to this garden world that you've given us. Help us not to get in the habit of putting our tools down and letting the weeds take over. Help us to mortify our sin. Help us to put away the the deeds of darkness. Help us to make sure that the, the flashlight of your word is perusing our hearts 
daily so that we might be made more into your image, the image of your Son. We thank you for this word of truth. We're grateful for it, and we pray that you would increase it in us. In Christ's name, amen.